everyone, and welcome to the Sex Ed Podcast. This is Kaylee. And this is Jen. This week, we are interviewing Michelle from the Polyamorous While Asian Instagram account. She is super rad. Per- She's just a super rad person. And we talk about everything from her solo polyamory to the book Sex at Dawn and even, uh, you know, whitewashing and racism in Portland. Yep. It is a wild ride. Yeah. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for being with us today and chatting about polyamory. So why don't we just dive into you telling us about yourself? What, uh, what are your pronouns and sexuality? Yeah, my name's so my name's Michelle. She her pronouns. I identify as bisexual, but I guess that label kind of means less and less to me with each passing day because I I could be pansexual, but I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think for a shorthand, I'm bisexual and I'm polyamorous as yeah. indicated by my Instagram handle polyamorous while Asian. <laughs> and oh man, what what I mean, what what should I say about myself? You know, I'm I majored in linguistics and I'm doing nothing with that ooh, now. Ooh. Um <laughs> you're, you're talking on this podcast, right? That's linguistics. Right. I mean linguistics, right. Linguistics is an everyday thing. Everything is linguistics. Right. So in essence, right, that piece of paper really is uh <laughs> taking taking. You use a long it every way. day. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> We know a teeny bit about you now. Can you tell us about uh, growing up, what kind of sex education you had, if any, so we can get a little history on that and where you're coming from? Yeah. I mean, I was just listening to your uh, abstinence-only episode. As always, this topic is very infuriating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course. And so growing up, I don't think the programs that I was in were abstinence-only, but definitely programs that, I guess, lauded uh, yeah. abstinence as like the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Just like don't Stressed have sex. It. Right. Like the whole, the whole mean girls thing where it's like, if you have sex, you will die. <laughs> kind <Right>. of thing. <laughs> well, you get pregnant first, you will get pregnant and then you will die. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. You will get pregnant and you will die. <laughs> Important <laughs> step. You can't skip that step. Right. Yeah. Well, mostly cause it only affects the women. Oh, <laughs> right. exactly. You need to be punished yeah, yeah. with a baby first and then you can die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a lot of like in elementary school, you know, like put the boys in one room, put the girls in the other room and roll out the TV with, I don't even remember what it was. I think I just <laughs> blocked it out. But the really cringy, <laughs> low quality, like, oh, this is, you know, this is your vagina and this is the uterus and you're going to have a period soon and that kind of <laughs> thing. And then in middle school, uh, it got a bit more in depth and <laughs> had some really interesting metaphors going on that was pretty slut shamey mm-hmm. and very abstinence focused like what oh Do you remember? Man. i <laughs> one this is basically like the only thing i remember from like middle school sex ed there was a demonstration where a teacher asked for some volunteers and i was one of the volunteers so i went up and we were each given like an oreo cookie and we were told Uh-oh. to chew the oreo cookie but don't swallow it and then we were each given a cup, and then we spat the Oreo into the cup, and <laughs> then we all poured that 
into a big glass. And then the teacher was like, okay, now who wants to drink out of this glass? (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, the metaphor was like, oh, yeah, you know, don't have a bunch of sex with a bunch of people or else you're basically this disgusting glass of Cheetah Oreos. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you now have a kink where you like chew up Oreos and like share them with your lovers? Spit them, (laughs) baby bird them into someone's mouth? (laughs) I mean... Well, I guess that's not too far off in in some ways. I mean, like after the pandemic, I can't wait for like someone to like spit in my mouth again, and to be honest. <laughs> you know, preferably without food, but I you know, I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. So, sorry, to switch gears back to your middle school experience, Ooh. which sounds enthralling yeah um what did you get anything in high school or did you get anything like at home around this time was anyone teaching you anything yeah so so in high school again more focused on abstinence but I think Mm -hmm. uh the teacher at the time was like I mean you guys are teenagers you guys are probably some of you are probably having sex but try for the abstinence and that and this era was more of what I remember was more of like the slideshows of STIs, mm. you know, like, oh, if you get STIs, like here are pictures of sores and things. And I don't remember ever mention of like how often STIs come with like no symptoms, like asymptomatic S- STIs. It was mm. always like the really gross, really in your face kind of quote unquote education. And so mm. that's mostly what I remember <laughs> from high school. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at home, my mom is so touchy about the subject of sex. Mm. It's interesting, her values, where it's like, her children can watch rated R movies with, like, lots of violence, you know, like, people gunning each other down and all sorts of gore, but, like, even a soft core, (laughs) very just slightly suggestive sex scene, shut your eyes, or why are you watching this? (laughs) (laughs) My mom is just so uncomfortable with the topic. Yeah. mm. So you never talked about it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, not really. Except for like, just don't do it. If you get pregnant, I will probably disown you. Um, <laughs> like, I th- I think the when I did finally get my period and I had to pretend that I didn't know about sex already. I had to pretend that I hadn't already Googled some things <laughs> to try to, you know, get a, get an idea of what was going on. So she like brought me into her room and she had already pulled up like this picture of like uh almost like a textbook black and white like outline of a penis. (laughs) (laughs) No detail, just flat. (laughs) And I was like really uncomfortable and I got like overwhelmed and I was like pretending I didn't know anything. I was pretending Mm. I didn't know anything because I I didn't want to get in trouble. So then I started like crying a little bit. And so then she was like holding me and basically telling me like this is a penis and – I don't remember the rest of the conversation, but it was probably (laughs) (laughs) something along the lines of like, oh, this is a penis. Like, you know, adults have sex and when they have sex, you can get pregnant or something. So Mm -hmm. please try not to do that. And because you have your period now, pregnancy Mm -hmm. is a possibility. So don't do it (laughs) for the love of God, please. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, yes, this crying reaction is what we want to penises. (laughs) Keep crying. (laughs) Hate them. (laughs) Oh, man, wow. so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that is like a long cry from 
being polyamorous, I assume you have to be comfortable with like lots of penises if you're polyamorous, but uh, potentially, I mean, you don't have to potentially. Yeah. You can be completely asexual and be polyamorous. So yeah, that's true. I guess I want to know before we get there, how you sort of discovered you were poly, like what was your journey from high school through college through discovering this about yourself to being open about it on Instagram? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really wild to think about because yeah, I'm 27 now. I've been non-monogamous for about nine years. I started when I was like 18. Wow. And it like the, the the precursor to that was my parents divorced when I was about seven. And so after mm. that, my mom was like kind of serially monogamous, had several boyfriends until she remarried when I was about 14. And so seeing this kind of firsthand and and also being one of those children who was like, I was always kind of shy and quiet, but a bit precocious <laughs> and definitely thought I was like smarter and more like, I don't know, cultured or something. Mm. <laughs> so, so I was like prematurely jaded or like I thought it was kind of cool to be cynical or jaded, mm-hmm. especially yeah. about like romantic relationships. And so, yeah, so I was kind of like skeptical about marriage and true love and romance and mm. all of that kind of thing. But also it really kind of befuddled me (laughs) like any like romantic movies or rom-coms or something where there's like usually one girl, two guys. And usually those two guys are fairly equal. Like they're both pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And then the movie has to like manufacture a reason for one of them to not be as good. Mm -hmm. So I always thought like, isn't there some way for adults to like, I don't know, be adults about it and share? Is that a thing that people do? Like it should be a thing. (laughs) But I never, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of like was just stuff at the back of my mind, purely theoretical. I was still on the, you know, mostly the monogamous train. Mm-hmm. When I was 18, I met my first partner and he was the one that introduced me to the book Sex at Dawn. Mm-hmm. And Sex at Dawn introduced me to like the formal vocabulary. And like reading mm-hmm. reading that book, my mind was completely blown. <laughs> it all made a lot of sense. And I was like, holy shit. So all the stuff that I'd been thinking about, like I finally have words for it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just makes total sense. This non-monogamy thing. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And so that partner was my my first relationship ever, monogamous or non-monogamous. And we basically immediately just agreed to be like non-monogamous. Because I was wow. like, yeah, this is great. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. I I this just just makes total sense. Let's do it. Feels right. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, being 18, and it was like, I think I met him on like my second month of like my freshman year of college. That whole time was a lot of self-discovery, a lot of figuring out what non-monogamy even means, Mm -hmm. what ethical non-monogamy is. Gosh, like that first relationship lasted about five years, and it was just this like (laughs) trial by fire. Yeah, (laughs) Lots Lots of lessons learned that may or may not <laughs> have required therapy since then, <laughs> but mm-hmm. valuable lessons learned nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. I bet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> Sex at Dawn was one of the first polyamory books I read as well. I read it when I was in college. We were probably reading it at the same time, honestly, because we're, we're just a year apart. So yeah. uh, it, it sort of posits, if I remember correctly, it's been, it's been a hot second since I was in college, <laughs> but uh, it sort of posits that like human beings – are non-monogamous kind of kind of by nature and that like the success of their societies was dependent on having 
on being non-monogamous and sort of like raising families in group settings, kind of. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember most about it. Did I summarize that correctly from your recollection? So it has been a while since I've like read it. But yeah, basically that non-monogamy is natural in humans, that not necessarily all humans early humans practice non-monogamy but like mm-hmm. it was part of our repertoire <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah and there's no reason for it to not continue to be part of our repertoire you know right. whatever that looks like in the modern era mm-hmm. yeah and it did one of the, I think one of the reasons why it felt so formative was because yeah it focused on like hunter-gatherer tribes and mm. I like how they explained it that like not necessarily how non-monogamy is just central like oh we're non-monogamous it's just it's just how they did. It was just so much more fluid, so much more yeah. of this collective mindset where it's like, it doesn't really matter who the father is because all the children of the tribe are just children of the tribe. Yeah. Parental lineage doesn't really matter as much because why would that matter? You know, we don't have yeah. to fight over ownership of lands or anything. And we don't have to try to delineate like, oh, who, what belongs to who? Yeah. Because it just belongs to everyone. Right. Not even that idea of possession where it's like, it's not necessarily anything belongs to anyone. Stuff is just yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And everyone has access to that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if we're mm-hmm. going to survive, like as a tribe, like you said, we all need to be in it together and raising kids together. And, and who cares whose child is whose child because we all raise them together. So Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. That's such a different vibe than like the patriarchal, particularly like Christian values that I feel (laughs) really have taken over. Cause I mean, Mm -hmm. monogamy is the default, like so much so. Mm-hmm. now that it's like you know possession like this is my kid this is my wife this is you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean you've been polyamorous or non-monogamous for it sounds like you said nine years right yeah what kind of lessons have you learned over the past almost decade that you might not have learned if you were monogamous do you think if you know. That's, yeah, no, that's <clears throat> that's an interesting question. I've often wondered, like, what my life would be like if I, like, never came across Sex at Dawn. Like, would I mm. inevitably have, like, because in, in Portland, the polyamorous community, we do have, like, a pretty, pretty decent polyamorous community. So I'm mm-hmm. like, would I have stumbled across it eventually? Or would I have just followed the monogamous kind of norm? Right. So exploring non-monogamy, like, I, I identify as, like, polyamorous, mm-hmm. but... Even when I kind of like educate on my Instagram, like I don't really push polyamory or non-monogamy. I present it as an option, but mostly what I like to focus on is the fact that like the the way that we do relationships just doesn't have to be the way that we do relationships, monogamous or Mm non-monogamous. I think a lot of, you know, the lessons that I've learned in non-monogamy can very equally apply to monogamy, Mm -hmm. lessons around boundaries and good communication, um, you know, like moving away from the more like toxic monogamous ideals around, like you yeah. were saying, possession, um, you know, seeing jealousy as like, oh, an indication of love. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Ew. the, and I think a lot of it can be encompassed under like the scarcity versus abundance mindset mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. right. In a lot of, I guess, monogamous narratives, like the only reason why maybe this love has any value is because in essence, it's because someone else can't have it. Mm-hmm. So in order for me to have this good relationship, someone else cannot have this good relationship. Yeah. 
And so I think we think of it more as like the zero sum game where it's like, okay, yeah, plus one and minus one over there. <laughs> Polyamory, I think, lends itself to this more kind of abundance mindset, even though mm-hmm. you still get some scarcity mentality in some practices of polyamory. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the biggest lesson that I'm continuing to learn too, because of course I still have you know, scarcity mindset here and there. And it's like a continual practice to try to remember that like, oh, you know, I am deserving of support and there's a lot of support out there. We just have to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you have this really, I think, unique maybe or or rare uh, experience of kind of learning about sex and sexuality while you were in a non-monogamous relationship. Like when you look around online for like people's stories, I feel like it's typically people who have been married a long time who then decide to open up their relationship. Was that beneficial? Do you think that you like learning about sex and kind of being in your first relationship and having it be an open relationship What was that like? I think there are definitely benefits of having learned about it or started exploring it younger. I -hmm. mean, definitely the drawbacks include just a bunch of naivete and (laughs) lots of uh, like Bambi on ice clumsiness. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But but yeah, like going into it, you know, relatively young and I don't know, untethered, I guess, Mm -hmm. so to speak definitely felt like I had a lot of freedom to explore. Yeah. If anything, it like helped me realize that I do really like the more solo polyamorous lifestyle. Like I Mm -hmm. think I started out as a more like the partnered hierarchical a bit um, because Mm -hmm. I was like living with my partner after a couple years. And I think just logistically it turned out to be kind of more hierarchical. Mm -hmm. But then I realized like, oh yeah, I Definitely, I prefer not living with any partners. I prefer having a lot of my Mm -hmm. own alone time and stuff. And it took a long time for me to figure that out. But when I did figure that out, it was very, very liberating. And yeah, being solo polyamorous, I'm like more of like, (laughs) I call myself like the free agent (laughs) um, (laughs) in my polycules. And yeah, yeah, it's, and I'm still exploring. I mean, I feel like it's like a lifelong process of learning and who knows what, you know, Michelle, a year from now or five years from now, like what my polyamorous wants and needs and what the structure is going to look like. Yeah. I think that's such an important piece of it is that like this, those structures can change over time. Mm-hmm. Dan Savage has talked a little bit about this specifically, like just communicating with your partner about what you need and that people and things change over time and that your sexual wants, romantic wants, you know, love once will change over time. I think Dad Savage coined monogamish. Like, do you feel like mm. you reckon, like resonate with that term? I, I <laughs> think I would call myself non-monogamous more so than polyamorous just because hmm. like I can be happy with one partner and I can be happy with multiple partners and it really depends on the relationship. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I like that. I like how you uh, describe that because yeah, I think some people feel like they, they have to be either monogamous or non-monogamous. And, you know, like, like we were talking about with change, like it is it is fluid. It is, you know, some people see it as an orientation, like I was mm-hmm. born non-monogamous. And some people yeah. see it more as just like a practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think both are very valid. 
and they don't have to cancel each other out or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there are some people in non-monogamous community that are a bit like a bit more intense, <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> but from my perspective, the point is to just figure out whatever structures make us happy or fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And like the only constant is change. And so kind of rolling with the punches and trying to check in with what we want, you know, at different chapters of our life, like that's super important. Yeah. And taking the kind of like personal responsibility to kind of roll, yeah, roll with those punches and adapt to what we need at that time. Like that's that's the most important part as opposed to like yeah. being monogamous or being non-monogamous. Yeah. Mm, right. Totally. What are your thoughts on different relationship types being taught in sex education, like polyamory? I mean, obviously it's hard to imagine because like right now in politics, there's, you know, people can't even agree on if sex education should be taught or if it should be abstinence only. Like, you know, we're obviously like a very long way away from (laughs) anything like that happening. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on like if that should be included, you know, maybe what some of the benefits or drawbacks could be. Yeah, I mean... Like one of one of the many, many problems of sex education is how like cis and hetero it is as well. And so mm, I think yeah, it, this can tie absolutely. into like like there definitely needs to be like more queer education, education around like gender nonconformity in sex sex education as well. And mm-hmm. you know, with regard to like relationship styles, like I don't think because it is just so broad, I don't think necessarily like I think the kind of education we need about it is just more normalization where it's like oh these are possibilities and yeah we don't have to teach kids that like they have to you know of course follow any one of these (laughs) but just to know that it's an option and for educators to just be able to normalize that where it's like oh yeah you know you might find yourself in a situation where you have a partner and your partner has a partner and you know you're friends with that partner's partner and that's okay, you know, and there's no slut shaming going on here. <laughs> You're not weird. Right. Just, you know, practice safe sex and have fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's the ideal sex ed where it's just right. like, be safe about it. Here's what you need to know. Have fun. <laughs> You're teaching our children to go join sex communes. Right. You know, have a sort of like <laughs> a sex commune, a sort of satanic panic. <laughs> like, what? They're getting yes. pleasure out of their sex? we must stop this (laughs) not in my good christian home (laughs) yeah isn't it kind of interesting to think i mean you guys are talking about sex at dawn uh which is a book about as jen was saying like kind of the history of of i guess instances of of Mm non-monogamy in human history do you guys know when that kind of changed or what the reasoning is behind that? I think, again, I can't remember if I read this in Sex at Dawn or something else. I think in Sex at Dawn, they attribute that, at least, they correlate that with the agricultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we were talking about, like, you know, land ownership and stuff. It became more yeah. important to figure out whose land belongs to who. And so, whose oh. son is this so that we can pass down mm-hmm. the land and, and things like that. So, uh, again, I have to, like, read the book again. But they I, they point to that as one of the many factors that push yeah. people more toward just like monogamy is king. Yeah. Yeah. Power. 
basically. Power yeah. capitalism and yeah, that, yeah. that kind of route. Winning women and other people. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And they, right, they they relate that to, right, like treating women as more like property, property. as well. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Right. And then, yeah, I'm not sure if they hit on this in the book, but like obviously the colonization of other places because where this happened first was Europe mostly. They had to sort of remove that out of native peoples who were practicing various forms of communal living and polyamory and stuff too. They kind of forced that on other, other groups of mm-hmm. people. Yeah. 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 No. That is a really interesting point. Like thinking about it in terms, I mean, and this is, I feel like I'm coming across very anti-monogamy. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> I'm not. I totally respect monogamy. I just, I think like, because so much of, of my feelings about polyamory are stemming from being raised and like learning so much about like purity culture mm. in the, you know, conservative Christian way that I was raised in the schools that I went to. For me, it, kind of feels like a little bit of a rebellion against those values Mm. and I love that (laughs) so I if I am coming across anti-monogamy that it is not directed at anybody's particular choices it's just my (laughs) own personal feelings about things (laughs) no I don't for what it's worth I don't think you are and I think it is frustrating to have like you sort of touched on this a little bit, but compulsory monogamy, like feeling mm-hmm. or not ever learning that there's any other way to be, to exist, or that if you do exist that way, yeah. it's like bad and, you know, tearing apart the very foundation of society. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, uh, it can be liberating to be like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I often like the joke that like, that's, I mean, I think that's the biggest perk of polyamory is like unraveling the fabric of society and destroying the sanctity yes. of marriage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite part of it. I mean, like being able to have sex with multiple people is fun, but have you ever destroyed the sanctity of marriage? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> now here's the question. Are polyamorous destroying the sanctity of marriage better than the gays? Ooh. You got to I mean, be a gay some... <laughs> polyamorist, obviously. That's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> like all of us in this room, guys, we should start mm-hmm. a coven. Honestly, we would be the most powerful. Ooh. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's uh, something to be said, too, about being out, about being polyamorous. It's not something I'm super out with with a lot of my family. And it's scary. I mean, because it's, you know, you hear stories about people getting their kids taken away. I mean, I guess that's the biggest one. That's the scariest one in my brain. Mm-hmm. But so you're you're obviously like you're you're out about being polyamorous, at least on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. Are, are you open about it with like friends and family? Yeah, anyone I would consider a friend knows that I'm polyamorous. Yeah. And with regard to family, only my sister knows because we're just mm. super close and we know everything about mm, each yeah. other. And with regard to the rest of my family, it's one of those things that I feel like will eventually come up <laughs> just because it's just so right. a core part of my life. But I'm also mm-hmm. in no rush to talk to them about it because yeah. I know it would make them uncomfortable. And I just, I don't have to, I don't feel like going through the labor of like explaining things to them or trying to explain my existence or whatever and still yeah. have them like judge me at the end of the day. Like even though totally. they won't, you know, disown me or anything, mm-hmm. like it'll just make them uncomfortable. And yeah, and I don't feel like I really need their 
validation or their knowledge yeah. of my personal yeah. life to really feel validated in that. Yeah. 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 There's power in that. That sounds very freeing as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm always, I think I also kind of like pushing my family's buttons a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> One day Kaylee is just going to invite her whole polycule to like Thanksgiving and it's going to be, it's going to be <laughs> yeah, a time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing because there's, there's this half of me that's like, well, I want it to be more normalized and I want to talk about it and be able to be open about it and not be worried about it. But then there's the other half of me that's like, but also like, does my family need to know that I'm having sex with all these people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, like with regard to like the legality around polycules and stuff, mm-hmm. like you said, yeah, I think it is kind of scary when people do have kids and they're pretty public about it. And yeah, you get like CPS at the door just being like, oh, hey, it's like is this kid being abused or whatever. Although I heard yeah. that like in Massachusetts, there are, I think, two cities now that legally recognize, I guess, non-monogamous, like at least more than two people on like a marriage certificate or something. Wow. Something like that. Or like they recognize domestic part. I don't know what the the legal terms would be, but like, you know, they recognize marriage as more than just being between two people. Yeah. Holy shit. How have we not heard about this? this. I know. I was going to say also shout out to Massachusetts because they're always the first related to these things. Weren't they the first state to like legalize same-sex unions as well? Oh, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, right, I was reading up about Massachusetts a little bit, and it's if if I, f- I feel like I've gotten parallels with Portland in a way in that mm. they appear to be very progressive, and they seem to have mm-hmm. a lot of very progressive things like, you know, recognizing same-sex marriages and, like, these two cities that recognize, you know, that marriage is between more than two people. But then those states and Oregon, very white also <laughs> yes so, which is which is important to note <laughs> yeah yes mm-hmm. i've been hearing a lot about uh portland in regards to that lately oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> one of my friends who lives out there we were just chatting and she is asian and was talking about how basically if she goes outside of like the main city part people will stare at her like what are you doing here <laughs> oh yeah yeah the portland metro Why area yeah yeah and even like the outside mean, well the thing is like with with asian communities like if you go out to a couple of like different suburbs like a sizable relatively i mean it's still like maybe what two percent of the population but yeah mm-hmm. if you go outside the metro area i mean even the outskirts of the metro area it starts like i feel like portland proper you know, is one of those cities that thinks it's really progressive. And I think in many ways it is. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it is the whitest major city in the United States. (laughs) And it does have a lot of, and I've heard from, you know, people who come from elsewhere that Portland is one of those cities that is pretty racist, but it's like very passive aggressive and kind of of under the radar kind of liberal racism. white. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The like, I'm a liberal white person, and I don't even realize I'm being racist. Kind of, or maybe they. Mm. Yeah. What's the word for it? I feel like I've been learning about this. I mean, like microaggressions, like galore, yes. but also this kind of veneer of progressivism that yeah. really is more about the status quo in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. You know, as right. opposed to really enacting 
meaningful right. change. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very, that is very interesting. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, let's have, let's have vegan gluten-free bakeries run by like queer people, but God forbid a Black Lives Matter protest like smashes a window, you know, that's yeah. where we draw the line. Right. Yeah. Right, we That's want a really good example. Communities <laughs> to say like safe and nice and be a great place to live. But like, you know, yeah, like you said, I'm not going to say exactly what you said again. But <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, like you're like saying like those, those are kind of like these code words, these almost like dog whistles right. of like, oh, you know, like let's keep these cities nice and basically very white and middle-class mm-hmm. and above. And right. Yeah. And in that sense with like the, the same sex marriage and, and it's like they're pretty much extending these rights to rights to other white people or they're like making these laws for other white people. Right. But like, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, they're not enacting meaningful change for communities that are more marginalized or who might need, you mm-hmm. know, these resources and things like more than they do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, Damn. yay for, you know, if more cities uh, expand the definition of marriage. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But right. also, like, at the same time, I feel like there are some bigger fish to fry. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. Totally. So I'm, I'm a little curious to hear about your work that you're doing on your Instagram. Can you give us a little overview of how you got that started and maybe, like, the kind of stuff you share? I know I went to one of your little, uh, not little, it was not little. There was a lot of people there. I went to one of your live <laughs> seminars. My goodness, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about- yeah, um, Pleasure over performance, it, right? Yeah. Yes, that one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I loved it. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this, the Instagram, Polyamorous All Asians, I started it a little over a year ago. Um, and a big reason why was because I was trying to find other, like I was trying to expand- you know, the polyamorous accounts that I was following. Yeah. And there's like a a significant like black community that's very vocal about being polyamorous. And I Mm -hmm. think they were like that partially inspired it as well. But Mm -hmm. I couldn't find like other Asians. Like that was like, Mm -hmm. I was like, I know, I know they're out there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've been with them. They're out there. They're in my poly field. (laughs) I know they exist. (laughs) I exist. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, is it just me? <laughs> and and I realized that I did feel comfortable being out. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I had have a sort of privilege where I'm at a place in my life where like I'm not gonna get fired, you know, if I'm out and polyamorous. I I mean, I think several coworkers do know that I'm polyamorous. And yeah. yeah, I'm in a place in my life where I don't feel like there would be any really any serious re- repercussions if I were yeah. to be out. And so the account started as a way to like find other polyamorous Asians and, you know, other Mm -hmm. like POC in general. And, you know, I I thought it might just, I thought it might just become like a Finsta, you know, where it's just like I post my (laughs) thoughts and (laughs) just like kind of vomit some thoughts about (laughs) or whatever else. I post pictures of my cats. And and then, yeah, a I don't know, people People seemed to resonate with what I was talking about. And also, I think because I was, like, an Asian who's polyamorous. Mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. think I, like, hit on that kind of niche. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So then I just, I just kept posting. And it was important for me to kind of continue to, like, amplify other, like, POC voices. 
And yeah. so I started things like, you know, like the Nominog Dialogues where like I interview other um, like POC non-monogamous folks. And it is important to me that I talk about uh, a variety of social justice issues with regard to polyamory. Like mm-hmm. I, I do love talking about polyamory and and stuff, but like the page is about more than polyamory. It is about yeah. more about kind of liberation in general, like mm-hmm. liberation mm-hmm. within our relationships, within ourselves, expanding representation and like actual meaningful diversity and inclusion, you know, not just like surface level stuff, but like really, you know, diving deep into, you know, what does it mean to be Asian and polyamorous or what does it mean Mm -hmm. to be black and polyamorous and, Mm -hmm. you know, and so on. Yeah. And just trying to to like uh, raise awareness around non-monogamy and just more like intentional and relationships in general, because like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, like, yeah, I'm not against monogamy. Um, I am against like toxic (laughs) monogamy and I'm against, yeah, you know, I, I do kind of resent that monogamy is the default and there's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, this like, uh, (laughs) the cult of monogamy in a way, people who like (laughs) defend it so hard. Um, (laughs) and yeah, yeah. So I just, I just want people to be happy. That's really what I want. I want people to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. And I, I feel like a lot of non-monogamy content can be totally whitewashed, so I think that just sounds like such a powerful thing to like build up this community and really show the diversity and get like all kinds of different voices involved and, you know, not have it be whitewashed because that's, that's no good. Yeah. <laughs> it must be so important to have your voice, your Instagram, your, your stories out there. I'm sure you're, I mean, you're an example to us. We love your content. So I'm sure <laughs> you're a shining example to other POC as well. Yeah. And it's, it's such a weird thing to think about because like, of course, like a, a imposter syndrome like creeps up and, mm-hmm. and also I'm just like a person with an Instagram. I don't <laughs> like, I have this day job that's like completely unrelated and, and whatnot. And, and if anything, like it, it's interesting because like there is polyamorous community in Portland, but like, I don't really feel connected to that kind of community mm-hmm. because <laughs> even though I talk about non-monogamy a lot, I don't tend to vibe with people who talk about polyamory all the time. If that makes sense at all. Like, I think there are some people who feel like they're a lot of their lives and their personality revolves around being polyamorous. And for me, I just Mm -hmm. am polyamorous and it's just Mm -hmm. a part of my life. I think that's an important part of normalizing these things and and getting people more comfortable and used to it. Like, you're not this big, scary, polyamorous person. You're (laughs) just Michelle, who is polyamorous. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I know you say you're a normal person, but I was very starstruck yeah. when you agreed to be on our podcast. So you're a few notches above I'm still a normal like, person, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very interesting because it's like, of course, you know, social media is curated, and you only mm-hmm. see like this this sliver of a window into people's lives, and mm-hmm. you know. In a way, I hope people don't think that I'm like this really cool person <laughs> because the reality oh, sure. is very different. The reality <laughs> is very different. And, you know, if ever I were to like meet someone in real life, they would like I wouldn't want people to be disappointed in a way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I I'm sorry. I can't really keep this conversation going or I'm keeping it going with this really random topic that may or may not interest you. And yeah, can I get another gin and tonic, please? Because <laughs> <laughs> say that sounds like every date I've ever been on. I feel like you're doing fine. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I feel like we have talked about 
so many amazing things on this episode. I'm I'm just like Yeah, jazzed to put the stage. Flabbergasted. Together, <laughs> ja- jazzily flabbergasted. That's that didn't sound <laughs> no cool at all. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Can you remind everyone again where they can find you? Yeah, and yeah, thank you, world. <laughs> thank you for having me on. This has been this has been a grand old jazzy time. <laughs> and where yeah, where people can find me, I'm mostly on Instagram, polyamorous while Asian. My email's on there as well, and that's that's where I mostly post my like resources and do interviews and stuff, and people can DM me there. And it's it's a yeah, yeah. it's a grand old time. <laughs> it's a grand old time. You'll be jazzily flabbergasted. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that's no, what the cool folks say. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed that. You can find us online at sexedpod at gmail.com if you want to chat more, and also on Instagram at sexedpodcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you to Kent for mastering our sound as always. Yeah, the yeah, best. yeah. And I'm going to harass you guys because I want more people to subscribe to our newsletter. So subscribe, go subscribe, subscribe. It's on our website at sexedpodcast.com or you can find it on Substack. Go do it. It's free. It won't hurt you. It's free and it's excellent. Thank you. In fact, it will probably enrich you. Yeah. It'll hurt you because your brain will grow so big that it'll bust out of your skull. Right. (laughs) It's a brain buster. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. You're talking, you're spitting truth, Kaylee. That's what you're talking about. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week with Dossie motherfucking Easton. What? what? (laughs) Yeah, we're really excited about having her on the podcast obviously yeah so we hope you are also excited and enjoy yeah ta-ta bye because you can get an annulment if you haven't had sex i think so i don't know maybe right? one person just has to say we've never had sex mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> what if you had sex before getting married but not after you got married does that count Haley, these laws were not created for like <laughs> You know, free, free women, loose women, you know, who had sex before marriage. So we need more loose women making the laws. I mean, yeah. (laughs)